I'd like to welcome everyone this morning to the Faith Reformed Baptist Church here in Titusville, Florida. I'd like to thank the Lord once again for allowing us to enter into his presence and remember that the only reason that we can come before God is that the Lord Jesus Christ has the key of David, that he has opened that door, that he has allowed us entrance into the chamber room of the king. He has allowed us to approach God. The doctrine I want to look at today has to do with strength. In the reading of the scriptures this morning, we, we read through the section of chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, to the church at Philadelphia. One of the things we read about was that the Lord recognized that they had little strength, and yet he was very pleased with them. And so the doctrine I want you to consider this morning is that we are to learn that God does not despise small and little things, and that even though we have small congregation, a little strength here and there, that we may still greatly please Christ if we keep his words and own his name. Learning to glory in God's strength and not our own is a blessing that can only be taught by the grace of God. This is a very popular theme. When I say popular, I mean it it's, it's can be seen throughout the entire New Testament, uh, and Testament, especially taught by the apostles in their epistles, that God delights to be glorified through the weakness of men. If God is pleased with his church, it's because the church humbly depends upon him. The scriptures teaches this very clearly. I want to read just two verses from the Apostle Paul concerning this topic. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we read this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for, is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So the bottom line of the doctrine we want to make sure we address today is this. When the church is content and satisfied with God receiving all the glory, then the church will be pleasing to God. So let's have a brief review of what we did last week, and that is the, uh, we covered the letter that was sent to the church at Sardis. And remember that the Lord was not very happy with them. They seemed to have had a reputation that they were a good church, that they were a church that was alive. And yet Christ immediately says, you have a reputation of being alive, but I know that you are dead. And so when the world is pleased with you and you have a good reputation with the world, it's a good idea to check to make sure that you are actually pleasing Christ instead of having the goal of pleasing the world. That was what we looked at last week. Now the observations we'll take a look at today will probably be a little bit longer than the uh, practical applications. However, uh, we'll not spend a lot of time there. We do have our Lord's Supper today. And so let's take a look at verses 7 through 13, and we'll have our introduction to the city itself. Now, Philadelphia, it sounds like a city that we all know about because we have a Philadelphia here in the United States. However, the name means the city of brotherly love, but it's not named after Christian brotherly love. This particular city is 
just 30 miles southeast of Sardis. And so we're almost done with the, um, shall we say, the mail carrier's route going, you know, starting at Ephesus and going up north along the coast, going in, in, in eastward uh, inland and then coming down south again. And so we have one more stop, which will be Laodicea. That'll be next week, Lord willing. And so Philadelphia in this area is today's modern city. I'm, I'm not going to pronounce this right. I know I'm not. But it's in Turkey, and it's a modern city of Eleşir. Now, I know that's wrong. I apologize to those people. Sorry. But this city was only founded 140 years before the Lord was born. It was founded by a man by the name of Attalus II, and his surname was uh, Philadelphus. But he had a brother that he did love, and his name was Eumenes, if that's important to you. But he loved that his brother, and he built this city for, um, and, and, and gave this city the name Philadelphia. So, this particular city was an important city in the region, simply because it was on a very important trade route. Now, all the cities that we looked at, they had their good points when it comes to being a center of this or a center of that. But this city was on a route that directly connected all the cities of the, uh, of the east with the cities of the west. So in other words, people from the, uh, the, most, the, the most eastern part of this region could travel to Europe on this one trade route, which happens to go right through Philadelphia. So this uh, was an important place. The city was renowned or known for its ability to grow very good grapes, and they were popular in making beverages that people were uh, very, very fond of at that time. The reason they could have these wonderful vineyards here is that the ground was made very fertile by an active volcano close to it, and the ground would, would receive the volcanic ash every now and then. The ground became very fertile. Well, unfortunately, around active volcanoes, you're going to have earthquakes. And this particular city was devastated and completely destroyed in the year 17 AD, which is the same time our Lord was about a teenager. And so uh, this city was, uh, it was known that it was destroyed by a, a, an earthquake. Uh, the Caesars at the time, Rome, sent money and they didn't tax them. They actually sent uh, resources there to rebuild it and... And so, in gratitude, the, the people of Philadelphia renamed their city just for a short time and called it Nero, uh, Neo Caesarea. And in other words, thank you for the new Caesar that came and, and gave us this money. But uh, the city is named Philadelphia. So, let's begin with the first verse, verse number 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, obviously, this letter opens like it does with all the other letters. It is addressed to the elders there at Philadelphia. Christ, once again, identifies himself. And this time, he usually identifies himself the way he was presented in chapter 1. Remember where he had the eyes that were full of fire. His feet were brass. Many times when Christ is going to address a church that may have a problem, he may say, remember me? I have the eyes that can see into your heart. I have the feet that can go among you. But here we have uh, a faint allusion to a very common way. And when I say common, it's not as though it's not a good way, but it's a very, um, it's, it's, it's repeated over and over again in Scripture in that he introduces himself as the Holy One and the True One. 
Now, when, when God is going to introduce himself in this way, and he is still pleased with you, and he says, I am the Holy One, and I know your works, and I'm pleased with you, then this is something that's really good news for them. He says, I am the true one, and he is pleased with them. It's because they have kept the truth. And so it's very important that, that the people of Philadelphia is not going to be reprimanded by the Holy God, but instead encouraged by the one who says he is holy, holy, holy. And the unusual part about this is that sometimes when the Lord is introduced to human beings, such as Isaiah, you can only see his holiness because that's what God says, I want you to see this one thing, my holiness. Or when the Lord is teaching, I want you to see this one thing, that I am faithful. But it is uncommon that God presents himself with those two things at one time. I am holy and I am true. And I believe this is done for the commendation that he gives them. He says, you have kept my word and you have kept my name. And he is <coughs> thankful and he is praising them for that. And so he presents himself with those two things. First, the holiness of God, which is required that any man who wants to see God and be entered into the presence of God by the one who opens the door, he must be holy. It is the righteousness of Christ that makes him holy, but it is also the one who walks in holiness, who knows who is the living truth. And so this is the uniqueness of how Christ introduces himself in this letter. There is a certainty and purity about it. The certainty that the holy God, who has all power, presents himself in the purity of his word. And so the word, both spoken and written, is seen as both sure and holy. So, the next phrase we look at is that Christ says that he has the key of David. Now, isn't it interesting that all these keys are found in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ? And the keys of death and hell are said to be in his hand. Remember when we read that uh, um, at the beginning. But this is not the same thing. Even though Christ has the keys of death and Hades, he has the ability and um, shall we say this, that we are no longer under the authority of death. If we are in Jesus Christ, death is now, well, let me put it this way, the atonement of Christ is the death of death. Death is no longer alive to us. And that uh, he is able to give us life and deliver us from separation from God. The key of David is something different. Uh, if you want to take this note down, this might be helpful for you and for your own personal study. In Isaiah chapter 22, this is the place where this phrase, the key of David, was originated and where it is found. It has to do with a man by the name of Eliakim, who is the son of Hilakiah. Now, you know, he's well, that, that explains everything, doesn't it? <laughs> but, but the idea here is that the Lord, through the voice of Isaiah, is saying this. I have a good king, that is a, that a, a king whom I love, and his name was Hezekiah, by the way, a good king. He had a servant, or shall we say, a steward, by the name of Shebna. Now, this man did not please God. When God saw what Shebna was doing, he wanted to replace him immediately because he built himself a mansion to live in. He built himself a nice big sepulcher to be buried in, and he wanted to have these things for himself. He wanted to be seen instead of the king. He was supposed to be the king's steward, but instead he stood in the place where people would see him instead of the king. 
And so God said, I want him replaced with Eliakim. He, Eliakim, uh, tells us, well, tradition tells us that he was a high priest, but the scriptures do not say that. But perhaps he was. The scriptures are not, uh, they, they're, they're silent on this. But what the purpose or the job of this man was to do this, he was presented with something called the Key of David, which gave him the authority to make the decision of who could see Hezekiah. In other words, no one could come into the presence of King Hezekiah unless this man opened the door. Or shall we say, symbolically saying, I have the authority, I have the key of David, I can allow someone to see the king. And if I say no, that door does not open. That man does not come into the presence of the king. And so whatever door he opens, whatever opportunity that he grants to someone who wants to go to the king, he has that authority to say yes or no. And he has that symbolic key. And he may open the door, the door is open, and that man can come into the presence of the king. Our Christ, obviously, through his sovereign power, but also through the authority of the atonement, can open doors to the presence of God. The gospel is the ultimate place, the door that people want to go into the presence of God. Only Christ can open that door. He is the one that has the authority to give life, and he will give it to whomsoever he will. And who does he give it to? Anyone who comes and asks. He will in no wise cast you out. But you must go to him. He is the only one that has that key into the presence of God. He opens the door. No man can shut it. But beware. If he shuts the door, no man can open it. Now this is a common phrase that people use. The Apostle Paul many times would say, There's been a door open to us, to the people of Macedonia. Or pray that I might have a door given to me, opened up. And so this is a common way of speaking, of saying, may God grant us a path forward. God can do this. He can open the hearts of people like Lydia. He can open providential service to us. But this is the way uh, this scripture is telling the people in Philadelphia. Christ has an open door for you, an open door for you. This is what he does to the servants with whom he is pleased. He gives them an open door. So we must embrace this truth for ourselves. We must be watchful when Christ opened doors for us. We must be prayerful, asking the Holy Spirit to help us to see the opportunities given to us by God. And we must take hold of this in our lives. We must be serious about this. Let's go to verse number 8. I know your works, for I have set before you an open door, and no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. So again, we see that Christ knows their works. Sometimes, if someone came into to an office of the worker and says, I know what you've been doing, and right away they go, oh no. Even right now, if God would say to you, I know your works, would you be pleased or would you be worried? But here, Christ is saying, I know your works and I am so pleased. It's an image that we can see that Christ has this key he has opened the door, and now he is saying, I know your works. Let's go to uh, verse number 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. There is only one other letter that refers to the synagogue of Satan, and that was the church of Smyrna. 
Now, Smyrna and Philadelphia have this one thing in common. They did not re uh, receive any rebuke. God was pleased with both of them. But shall we say coincidentally? I think not. They both had also one thing in common. Jews who claimed that they knew God and they immediately attacked the church of Jesus Christ saying they do not know God. And so they had that in common. And I want you to think of it this way. The Jews felt that they were the children of God. But God is saying to the Christian, do not let that discourage you. They say they are the children of God, but they are not. And so he even tells them, there'll come a time when I will open their eyes and they will see that I have loved you. So do you see the difference? The Jews are saying, I know that we are the children of God and you are not. God is not in your presence. God does not love you. God does not like you. And yet we have here a promise of the Lord saying that I will tell them that I have loved you. Whether that is in this world or in the world to come, I cannot say. I don't know. Verse number 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. To try, that is to by trial, to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this is an interesting phrase. It reads differently in the ESV than it does in the King James Version. In the King James Version it reads like this. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience. And in the ESV, the way we read it today, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. And there is a slight difference here. I, I will, I'll put it this way. It's probably a difference that makes, uh, shall we say, a distinction that makes no difference. But I would like to bring it up to you. For one, the King James translation makes us think that it's more like this. You have kept the word of my patience, or I say, my patience with the world, or shall we say, with repented sinners, is the gospel. Since you have kept the gospel, and you have kept it pure, that's what he's talking about. I will keep you from the hour of temptation. But if we read it this way, because you have kept the word about being patient, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. I prefer to believe the King James Version way because one leads to the other. If we keep the gospel, then Christ will also enable us to endure all the tribulations. It's a, it's a common thing for people to read this and say, well, it says here that I will keep you from the hour and the trial that will come upon the old earth. And so that means that we're going to be raptured away from the earth before the trial comes. He's going to keep us from having to endure that. But I don't see that here. The reason that we have the gospel is that we may be able to endure. That's why he gives it to us. We are going to be able to endure the trials that come upon the earth, the trials that will overcome the earth. They will not overcome us. It's like living in Egypt in the land of Goshen and the darkness comes. It still came upon that land. Everything where the Egyptians lived were dark and plagued. But everywhere where the Christians, or shall we say, God's people lived, it was light and there was no plague. So that is the one unique thing about this verse. <clears throat> I would say this um, concerning whether we are going to go through great tribulation or not. I like to read you 
about four or five verses from the Lord's high priestly prayer. This is just before he's crucified. He says this, verse 17, verse 14 through 17. He's praying to his father. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Remember how the Lord says, you have kept my word and you have owned my name. Now the Lord is praying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is what the Lord is teaching them. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Now, just before this prayer happened, he was teaching his disciples. And in the very last verse of the previous chapter, we read these words. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Blessed is he that overcomes. If we follow the instructions of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be able to endure what is going to happen. So the Lord is not promising to snatch his people away, but he is promising to give us grace to endure when the world will be overcome. Verse number 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no man may seize your crown. Now every commentator that I read agree on this one thing. When he says, I am coming soon, he's not referring to the second coming. He's referring to the fact that he knows that the great trial is going to become, is going to come for them, but they are going to be able to endure and that he is coming soon to help them. In other words, I'm coming soon to help you right now. Christ said, if I do not go away, I cannot send the comforter. I will come again to you. And even now, to the church that he loves, it says, you have kept my word, you have owned my name. Trials are coming, and I am coming soon to you. In other words, hold on. Hold on, I'm coming. So there is a warning given here also. It says at the beginning of this verse, let me find it here. Oh, uh, the verse that we're looking at right now. It says, I'm coming soon so that no man may seize your crown. So the, the warning that he's giving is this. Watch out so that no one takes your crown. Remember what was promised to the church, the other church that had no problems, Smyrna. He says, I will grant you a crown of life. Now, he didn't say that they had a crown of life. He says, because of these things that those who overcome... I will give them a crown of life. But here he is saying, watch out so that no one takes your crown away. Now, there are many people who have a misunderstanding about the gospel concerning whether it is given by, that is salvation is given by the grace of God or whether it is something that we have to earn by our good works. And I'll say this, anyone who thinks that they can earn favor with God by offering their good works to them to receive a crown of life. Anything that they can keep or earn on their own can also be taken away by anyone who is stronger than they are. It can be taken away. But Christ is warning this. Watch out that no man take your crown. So what does this mean? Is this the crown of life? 
I will say it this way. The church in Smyrna said that they would receive a crown of life. And I believe that that is everlasting life. It's easily understood. But even now in this life, a person can believe and have assurance of salvation. I can say I have a crown of life, even though I know that the day comes when I shall be granted that. And I'll cast it at the feet of my Christ because he's the one that gave it to me and all his works and so on. However, even in this life, Christians can be robbed of their assurance. And so Christ is warning them. You have the truth of the gospel. You understand that salvation is yours. Life is yours. You have been given life now. Those that believe in God now have life right now. But there will be those who want to take that away from you. Be cautious. Do not be robbed of your assurance of your salvation. So verse number 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven, from my God, out of heaven, and my own new name. So here we have two promises. One promise is that God will make them a pillar in the temple of God. And the other promise is that God will write names upon them. Let's take a look at the being a pillar in the temple of God. Remember how Christ addresses them? I know that you are have a little strength. And here, if you recall, the people of Philadelphia, they may have had anxiety about living inside their homes since they lived on a place that had an active volcano and they lived in a place that uh, just... Uh, just a few years before was completely devastated by earthquakes. Uh, they may live in their homes and if they feel a tremor, what do they do? The first thing they want to do is run out of the house. And so it may be fresh in their own minds that sometimes I don't feel safe in my house. I don't feel safe with the walls of stone around me. However, in the temple of God, Christ is assuring them, you who have a little strength, you shall be a pillar in the temple of God. Now, I don't have pillars in my house, but I do have weight-bearing walls. If I wanted to go into my house and I say, well, this wall holds the weight of, uh, of, my, of, my, of the trusses of the floor above me and of my, of my roof. And if I decide, oh, I think I'll move this wall, well, then I'm endangering having my house fall down on me. Okay, and so a weight-bearing wall or a pillar that holds up the structure is something that's not like a piece of furniture. I can't go to my house and say, let's move all the things that hold the roof up. No, no, no. We are not going to be pieces of furniture in the temple of God. God is saying, you who have a little faith here, this is what God uses to make a strong temple of God. It is by the power of God that sinners are saved and they are now being made pillars. Now, this is not to make us think as though we are going to be strong or this or that. But um, it is to say that we shall never go out anymore. You don't take pillars out of the temple. They remain in the temple itself. We will become temp pillars in the temple of God. So, when it comes to um, we will never go out again, it's because Christ has made us an integral part of being in the presence of God and his temple. 
Verse number 13. He who hath an ear, let him him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And once again, the Lord is giving us an encouragement to listen to what the Holy Spirit is teaching all the churches. There is a value and a blessing to these teachings. And so let us please listen and learn from them. If the shoe fits, we need to wear it. The application I want to give you today has to do with having a little bit of strength. We should live by the strength of God and not our own strength. And it's difficult. It's a difficult concept for some people because they say, I want to have strong faith. And so they feel like they need to work up this faith. What we really should have is a heart that says to God, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I need your spirit to show me the truth, and then I cannot deny you. The church in Philadelphia had a little strength. We don't know if it's a little strength when it was come to, to the numbers of people. Maybe they were a small congregation. Perhaps the gifts that God had given them were humble gifts, humble talents. But we know this. Even though they had a little strength, that Christ was very pleased with them. Remember the former church, the church we looked at last week? They said that their works were not complete. Well, in this case, I believe that the works were complete. I believe that Christ was pleased in the the way they, they held the word. He was pleased in the way he owned their name, but also pleased in their fullness of heart in loving God and loving their neighbors themselves, loving others and loving the brethren especially. They were complete in their works. And so we should also identify with this church if we, if we in a humble way can. I would love to have our church like this church, that we can, in our weakness, depend on God's strength. We should be encouraged. Let us pray that we are going to be like them in their obedience and in their works, in our love to others. And we can do this by taking or shall we say, by taking the encouragement that Christ gave them. Immediately he said, Christ has the key of David. We need to see that our Christ opens doors for the weak. He opens doors for those who have little strength. He is going to give us that opening. He is going to provide us access into the presence of God. Why? Because he has the power and the authority to do so. And we are weak in many ways, but our weakness can be our strength. We have but little power. We are simple. We are just normal, everyday people in Titusville, Florida. But God knows that though we are weak and simple, we can still keep the word of God faithfully. We can still own his name. We should have this teaching embedded into what we do here. We must always have our eyes open to the doors that Christ opens. Right now, there may be people even among us here that want to be in the presence of God. And I'm telling you that Christ alone can open that door into his presence. And you need to go through that door. Christ is the one who says, come meet the Father. Come in. No one can shut this door. No one can keep you out. When Christ says, come to the Father, there is no other way and no one can prevent that. 
So come to Christ. Believe the gospel. Introduce yourself humbly by the authority of the one who can open that door. And once you see God, you never have to leave again. Christ can keep you safe. You don't need to have this strong faith. You don't need to have the strong will. You don't need to have the strong anything. You ask Christ to save you, and Christ will complete that work. He will work in your heart. He will give you confidence and strength. How? By showing you how strong his father is. By showing you how his authority has saved you. You must depend upon his strength. It is through that weakness that this gospel can save little weak people like us. And how we can remain as a preaching church in Titusville. We can do this because we don't have to be seen as big as and important. We don't have to be celebrities. We don't have to be geniuses. We just have to be faithful and love God. And Christ will open these doors for us. Christ will open these doors. He'll give us opportunities. What Christ has opened, no man can shut. It is one more thing I wanted to, to consider that when Christ says, if he shuts a door, no man can open it. Christ wants some doors to remain shut, and he will not allow us to go through them. One of those doors is that we must not evangelize people through our imaginations. We can only do this through the holy word of God. We can only preach the gospel the way it is in the book. God will not allow us to go through any other door, any other way. No gimmicks, no circuses, no clowns, nothing like that. It must be just preaching. I'd like you to consider the scriptures in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 concerning the weakness of our church and why we should not be ashamed of it and why we don't have to be afraid. For considering your calling, brethren, not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So, and this is the reason, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. We need to be able to boast in Christ and in God alone. That is what I want our church to do. That is what I want myself to do. Let us boast alone in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us boast that the Holy Spirit is the one who works the, the, the heart to repentance and to believe. Let us work and boast of our God who is in heaven that will abound toward us in his grace. And so in conclusion, let me say this. Though a church may have little strength, the church may still greatly please Christ if the word keeps his word and owns his name and humbly serves him even in their weakness. Let's go to the Lord in a brief word of prayer and then we'll have our Lord's table. Our Holy Father, we come in the name of our Savior. He is our advocate. 
He has presented himself to you spotless and has provided to us his own righteousness. We hide under the wing of your protection. We come to you and we pray that you would receive our worship because we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, that you would enable us in our weakness, our frailty, the small things that we cannot do on our own, that we might serve you humbly, might worship you in spirit and in truth. So give, Father, our church this grace. Help us to be humble. Help us to not despise what is small and weak, but help us to praise and to glorify our God who is able to take people like ourselves and bring about good things that you have brought about. May we recognize the hand of our Christ opening the door to your presence. And may we recognize the hand of our Christ opening the door of opportunity to serve you. We pray these things for the glory of our Christ. Amen.